What you're about to listen to is a work of imagination, but not fantasy, set in the year 2050. Sophia here, go ahead. We're approaching the island. Come again. Sailor is showing an anomaly with turbine 347. Roger that, I'll look into it when I'm on the ground. Over and out. That was Sofia Rojas. She has allowed us to tap into her personal digital diary to share her experiences. This is lucky for us. She wields a lot of power. She's going to take us on an exclusive island that has rejuvenated Europeans for decades. I'm your host, Mutinta Banda, and you're listening to Climate Vision 2050. We're exploring the people and places around the world that have helped us move closer to our climate and sustainability goals today in 2050. The challenges we faced, the technology that has made it possible, and the crucial steps that still need to be taken. Between the 20s and 30s, we've added 1 billion people to the planet, further straining our energy resources. Political tensions are increasing as energy dominates as the weapon of choice. We simply don't have enough space on land. We need to look offshore to manage this crisis. In this episode, we'll visit the North Sea Energy Island. There are more than 50 of these all over the globe, but this is one of the oldest. When it launched in 2040, it was one of the first sustainable power plants that was able to create renewable energy, mine CO2 directly from the atmosphere, and combine them to produce the low-carbon fuels that power energy-intensive vessels like our cargo ships, airplanes, and space shuttles. Looking out the window, I can see the island. It's uh, about the size of 18 football pitches real ones, not the micro football pitches we have in the cities. I've been on newer islands at least three times the size of this, but they're all doing the same thing. Here, our past behaviors meet our future hopes. The past is on the northern part of the island, the tiny towers, only 30 meters tall. They are direct air capture units that absolve the sins of energy past. They pluck CO2 out of the atmosphere and we store it in those blue domes for reuse. Right next to them are long green tanks. Those hold the energy of the future. Low carbon fuels that get sent out for shipping and aviation. But all around the island, those are the big towers, the wind turbines. Each one is about 300 meters tall, about three times the height of the Statue of Liberty. Those are the giants and they power everything. Sofia Rojas is an offshore technician specializing in the operations and maintenance of energy islands. Those turbines are generating enough energy to power over 10 million homes. And that's only from the first phase of the island. Further into the North Sea and the Baltic Sea is an extension of this island that powers all of Northern Europe with clean renewable energy alongside onshore wind and solar. Energy islands would not have been possible without groundbreaking technological advances from climate visionaries, unprecedented action, as well as continued protection, maintenance, and repair of the islands and the critical technologies they host. Going to the Energy Islands is, of course, a very special experience for me. 
I've taken part of the whole journey from the very beginning, yeah, back to actually before 2020 when we started. I'm very proud when I go there and see these enormous uh, constructions and all the wind turbines uh, powering most of the northern Europe with, with clean energy. That's Professor Jacob Ustergaard, the head of the Department of Wind Energy at Denmark Technical University. Professor Ustergaard and his team of researchers were instrumental in the development of the North Sea Energy Islands. I'm actually part of this because I always dreamt of building wind turbines. When I was a kid, I wanted to make these wonderful machines that could actually harvest energy, free energy from the wind. Building the first artificial island in the North Sea was an enormous undertaking. An energy island of this scale had never been built before. Professor Ustergaard and his team had to work through complex technical challenges, like how to incorporate high-voltage direct current transmission lines, or HVDC, on the island to bring energy back to shore. They also had to work on power-to-X concepts, storing surplus energy generated from the turbines to be put to use beyond just generating electricity. We had to develop new technologies and new solutions, including uh, HVDC. We had to uh, find out how we could integrate Power2X efficiently on these uh, isolated systems on, on the islands. So it was a, a lot of new things had to be done. It was kind of a mass mission for the energy system. For over 5,000 years, humans have harnessed the energy of the wind, from powering the sails on our ships in antiquity to grinding grain and pumping water in the Middle Ages. The wind has been a powerful force for human progress. It was a unique combination of factors that came together to make harnessing wind on energy islands possible. Professor Ustergaard takes us back to a time he remembers when the energy islands were still just a dream. It began uh, back in the around uh, 2020 uh, when we hit the university, uh, did some research in uh, energy islands together with a Danish transmission uh, system uh, operator. We did our, our research and not too much fuss about it, uh, but suddenly uh, the Danish government, the minister of that time for climate and energy, uh, uh, suddenly uh, came with the announcement that Denmark should build the uh, world's first two uh, energy islands. And suddenly everything uh, picked up. Denmark, along with other European nations, had at one time been extremely dependent on coal and natural gas. These nations weren't quick enough to act when the climate crisis became evident. Morgan's home is a power-to-X expert from BCG. He explains how the 2020s were an important decade in the uptake of renewables. Not just because the effects of climate change became increasingly evident through extreme weather events, but for political reasons as well. 30 years ago, we actually had a war in Europe where Russia invaded Ukraine. Before the invasion, we thought that we were going into the roaring 20s. But instead, we got the COVID pandemic followed by an energy crisis in Europe, which led to that energy and security politics becoming one of the same. And in that context, it really accelerated renewable 
and the need for low-carbon molecules as an alternative to fossil fuels, especially in hard-to-abate sectors where renewable power is less suitable. It also meant that we went from insufficiently funded political ambitions to major commitments de-risking the markets and truly allowing, for example, low-carbon fuels like hydrogen to scale. Millions of people have migrated over the past 10 years due to climate change. Today marks the end of rolling blackouts in the region as renewables come online. The initiative is called AI for Climate, and it's all about robotics and climate change. Back at the North Sea Energy Island, Sophia touches down in an eVTOL, an autonomous single-seater aircraft, and makes her way to the control center. There used to be so many people here. Now, there are just a handful of us left. Unless you count our flying friends. There are about a thousand of them. And the sailor watches over all of us. A pilot used to have to drop off a whole crew of technicians to service offshore power facilities like this one. Today, it takes just a small staff and a variety of specialized robots and drones. The SAILOR stands for Simultaneous Artificial Intelligence Oversight and Record. It's a system that not only regulates every fixture, flange and filter, but also tracks every buoy, bird and breeze in a half a square megameter. Ahoy SAILOR! Compile status report on Turbine 347. This might take a little while, but this should be able to locate our anomaly. When I was younger, I was stationed all over the world. The Sea of Japan Island, the Gulf of Menar Island, between India and Sri Lanka. I would climb the tallest giants to do the repairs myself. I was a wind rigger. I used to love to be hundreds of meters in the air dangling by a rope off a turbine. Now that I'm older, I'm happy to let the drones do the work keeps my blood pressure down. <laughs> the climate crisis causes me a lot of anxiety. In Latin America, where I'm from, hydropower is a huge source of electricity. There have been years where we've had droughts and the dams can't produce energy. During those times, factories have to close, people lose their jobs, and food becomes scarce. I've seen what happens when energy becomes scarce. People become desperate. When I had the opportunity to pursue my studies back home, I knew I wanted to get into renewables, hydroelectricity or wind power. Energy islands aren't a silver bullet by any means, but they are one piece of the puzzle. According to BCG's Mogan's Home, one of the critical innovations in energy islands has been moving them towards what's known as floating concepts, as opposed to fixed bottom. These turbines are placed on floating structures that are anchored to the seabed. Floating concepts don't require shallow waters, so they can be placed anywhere in the world where the wind is strong and stable. We can now harness the great wind energy potential from the open seas and truly decouple where we produce and consume low-carbon molecules. And this has led to significantly reduced production costs. Being able to harness the strength and stability of the winds further offshore allowed the energy islands to become increasingly cost-competitive with other types of energy production. 
But it isn't enough for these islands to produce only electricity. Mogens explains that it was important for wind energy to be put to work in other ways. So the floating concept that we have here is basically a massive production of green renewables through wind power primarily. And we use that to generate hydrogen. And at the same time, we're also basically collecting from the air the CO2. That's also what we call uh, direct air capture. And with this combination of hydrogen and CO2, we are making uh, green fuels, for example, for the transportation sector. To make a significant impact on the climate crisis, we needed our energy islands to use the renewable power produced to be put to work towards making low-carbon fuels, such as hydrogen. We also needed the island to power direct air capture units to extract CO2 directly out of the atmosphere. The combination of hydrogen and CO2 allows us to create green fuels for transportation. What you see around an island is some towers that are 30 meters tall and you see the fans and that. That's actually where we collect our carbon. So that's where we have our massive units of uh, direct air capture. Basically, the transformation of the mining sector, that is what is in the air and not what is in the ground. So for more than 150 years, we have always tried to drill downwards. Now, already from the start of this century, uh, pioneers started saying, okay, why don't we look at the air right in front of us and pick every little molecule of carbon out of that? The CO2 that is collected is then combined with hydrogen to produce the low-carbon fuels we are using today. When the CO2 is used in the fuels, it is again released into the atmosphere and the direct air capture units will capture it again and the process repeats. In this way, we've brought circularity into the process. Not everyone was supportive of the energy islands at first. Professor Oostergaard explained some of the criticisms of the energy island projects. Back in the uh, 20s, there were part of the population and various interest organizations that were quite worried about the energy islands. One thing was the cost of it. They found it uh, very expensive. They actually argued that we shouldn't build these energy islands and should find different ways with nuclear or other technologies to uh, reduce the carbon emissions. The initial investment from the Danish government in the North Sea Energy Island was $34 billion. It was the largest construction project in the country's history at the time, and it was heavily subsidized by taxpayers. The cost was a huge concern, but Professor Ustergaard notes that there were additional issues. The other thing was the uh, environmental concern, whether both the uh, construction, but also having these constructions on sea would uh, harm the nature at sea. Professor Ustergaard and his team at the university worked on programs to monitor the environmental impact of the energy islands in collaboration with NGOs focused on protecting biodiversity. More than 200 species of fish and more than 10 million birds call the North Sea home. The developers wanted to ensure that the energy islands would promote rather than harm the natural environment. This has been a huge priority that continues to be monitored today. 
Another issue was figuring out how to transport hydrogen safely and cheaply. It is extremely flammable. An important investment in renewable energy that helped spur the innovation of this and other technologies was the 2022 U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, a monumental investment in renewable energy. Here's BCG's Morgan's home. It was $500 billion that was basically put into renewables and low-carbon uh, technologies as an example. That made a big difference because it effectively de-risked the market, which was the core bottleneck before this. In the 2030s and 40s, the reliance on fossil fuels gradually faded as more and more countries invested heavily in renewable energy. Back at the control center, Sailor has finished running the status report on the anomaly identified. Sophia's augmented reality visor patches into the remote camera inside the turbine so she can investigate. So, if I separate this piece and I move it over here... Wait, what? What is that mark on the generator? Uh, I can't make it out. Looks almost like it's been damaged in some way, but I can't quite tell. It could be damaged, or it could be a broken connection with Sailor. Or worst case, it could be a security breach. It's been ages since I've been out to one of the turbines, but it looks like I'll have to get closer to see if I can get a better look. Attention dispatch, I'll need a shuttle crew out to turbine 347. Please assemble at the harbor. Maybe I'll get to do some wind rigging after all. Another challenge with the energy islands, according to BCG's Morgan's home, is the ongoing threat of attacks. Some of these plants are quite big, so it's more security and energy being combined. So the security policy around them is different. Cyber attacks are a threat on the island, and governments have needed to continually update their cyber defenses against hackers. The sailor and drone software is continually updated against the most current threats. Professor Ustergaard explains how that cybersecurity infrastructure was built into the designs. When we built the uh, Energy Islands, we of course also had some focus on uh, protecting the systems towards uh, cyber attacks. The whole IT infrastructure related to the Energy Islands were very carefully designed, so the most sensitive uh, parts were protected against uh, cyber attacks. Communication and connectivity around the island is crucial. Today, Sophia and other offshore technicians are able to maintain connection to the team on shore, the turbines themselves, and even the turbine manufacturers around the globe to help troubleshoot issues without relying on antiquated or vulnerable technologies like satellite phones. Our offshore technicians like Sophia are trained in how to work with the defense system and cybersecurity infrastructure. Out in the North Sea, Sophia and her crew arrive under Turbine 347 as it powers down. She walks across a gangplank and enters the base of the giant wind turbine. Once inside, she starts up the ladder. Okay, I am definitely out of shape. It is a long climb to the top, 
the drones are good, but they can't detect everything. Sometimes you still need to get up close and personal. Ah. Okay. I'm, I'm still not quite sure what I'm seeing there, though. Ah. <laughs> okay, okay. It looks like a cracked valve that leaked onto a sensor. Ah, that's what caused the anomaly. Just wear and tear damage, not a security breach. This damage was probably exacerbated by some of the rough weather we've been having out here lately. Okay. That drone's going to work on getting that patched up while we're out here. Hopefully I don't freeze to death. Without the world's energy islands, 2050 would look very different. We learned some important lessons. 2035 marks a year without a single hydrogen explosion, demonstrating great strides towards working with this flammable material. In 2030, over 10,000 U.S. homes were retrofitted with flood-resistant materials. At COP40, global leaders are meeting to discuss how to accelerate green technology. According to BCG's Morgan's Home, producing low-carbon molecules on the energy islands was one of the greatest steps we could have taken toward climate stability through renewables production. But our work is far from over. We still have actually climate challenges. We saw that especially in the 20s and the 30s. We saw more, for instance, typhoons. We saw hurricanes, especially in the US and others, really increasing. Professor Ustergaard says that we could have accelerated the work on climate change faster than we did. Given that we knew the effects that climate change was having on our world, we could have acted more quickly. Yeah, looking back to uh, the beginning of the 20s, my message uh, back to myself and the others at, at that time would be to really uh, boost the development and the innovation even faster than we, we actually did. A lot of the innovation was implemented also in the 30s and in the 40s, and we could actually have done more back in the early days, which could have saved us from some of the challenges we, we met on an earlier stage. Today, energy islands exist around the world. But what's next? One important issue is managing trade-offs. According to Morgan's Home, there's still more work to be done to ensure that we don't deplete rare earth materials used to produce the turbines. So there's something still on the resources we're using. How can we be even more clever? Can we replace resources? Can we use other types of resources? So it's the, the sustainability and the life cycle part of this is still an issue. And considering how we do that, using more new types of materials is certainly one of the elements for it, and a critical one. I'm back at the island now, at the recreation area by the old port. I have some friends who are getting off their shift here soon. There are not many windriggers left, but when we do see each other, we have a great time. We go fishing. If we're lucky, we'll have a barbecue. <laughs> Maybe just watch the sunset on the giants. When the Vikings sailed these waters, they thought that giants caused the wind and the waves. And that one day, 
they would end the world with fire and floods. Now, we have our own giants, and with any luck, they might actually just save us. You've been listening to Climate Vision 2050, a podcast from BCG that explores how the world radically reduced carbon emissions and saved itself from climate catastrophe. And narrator Mutinda Banda is played by Atibo Onan. Offshore technician Sophia Rojas is played by Nicole Shahab. You heard from our experts Jacob Ustergaard, head of the Department of Wind Energy at Denmark Technical University, and BCG's Mogens Home, a power-to-X expert. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Lower Street, a full-service podcast production agency that creates amazing shows for brands that want great, not good. BCG is a global consulting firm committed to climate and sustainability action. We understand there are many possible futures, and we hope you enjoy our journey through some of them in this series. Learn more about our work on climate and sustainability at bcg.com climate.